Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 19 of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association, Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Chris Gorman and Brandy Tanner. Okay, listeners, right off the bat, we have to address the elephant in the podcast room here. We have been on a much-needed sabbatical for the last few months, and we missed you all so much. We sure did. And you can tell that because Brandy gave an extra hello that we don't usually give in the intro. <laughs> Three hellos this time, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, she's right. We've been uh, MIA since November, Uh, planned on taking a Christmas break this year that just, well, just never ended with the stress of everything over the past couple years. Uh, But now we're back, we're ready to be better than ever. And to celebrate our return, we're doing things a little bit differently today. We're focusing on one expert guest on this episode because we have an award-winning, internationally best-selling author with us this month, and we want to give you as much time with her as possible. That's right, Chris. It's an exciting day. Eva Stashniak, author of the newly released historical fiction novel, The School of Mirrors, is here to discuss her new book, The Craft of Writing Historical Fiction, the connections between her work and ongoing events of our world today, and so much more. Oh my goodness, I have to try really hard not to go full fan Chris. <laughs> right? Uh, we're super lucky to have Eva on the show. And I have to say, like, Eva was amazing. Um, and I can't wait for you to listen to the interview. So we don't want to keep you all waiting. So let's get started with our Canadian Authors Toronto events. Our event last month was called Craftwork and was the first in a series of CAA Toronto programs designed to demystify elements of craft and get branch members talking to each other about how writing tips can be put into practice. That first session featured short presentations from five Toronto area writers, Kevin Wilson, Jean Shepard, Susan Craig Wittick, Naroji Mungai, and Laura McNeil. Craftwork was entertaining and informative, and it really gave our participants a chance to hear from and connect with each other. It received rave reviews from the attendants, and I can't wait for the next Craftwork session. Before that happens, though, our next event on Thursday, March 31st, from 7.30 to 9 p.m., will be one of our always popular open mic nights. Attendance is free and open for all via Zoom, but registration is required so please register through canadianauthors.org slash Toronto slash events. There are 14 spots for Canadian Authors Toronto members to perform a five-minute reading each. If you are a member and you'd like to give a reading at this event, please email leeparpart at gmail.com. That's L-E-E-P-A-R-P-A-R-T at gmail.com. And please feel free to invite friends and family to join the audience. The more, the merrier. Our open mic nights are so much fun and a great way to hear what kind of work our members are up to these days. Now, 
We'd usually talk about some upcoming writing contests, but we've kept you waiting for Eva long enough. So we'll simply remind you to visit canadianauthors.org slash national slash links slash awards dash competitions to see what opportunities are coming up. Yeah, and there are some great ones listed there, including the Edna Stabler Personal Essay Contest, the new annual Sheila Berry Best Canadian Picture Book of the Year Award, and the Wurgle Flomp Humor Poetry Contest, all with deadlines in late March or early April. The Wurgle Flomp Humor Poetry Contest makes me smile every year, Brandy. Makes me smile too, but I hate having to say it because I... <laughs> Wordle flop. <laughs> yeah. Also, I thought we weren't going to talk contests. Well, you know, just a few little ones to entice our listeners. All right. <laughs> Good luck to all our contest submitting listeners. And now it's time for the main event. Settle in with a mug of tea or a glass of nice wine and help us welcome the fascinating Eva Stashniak. Considered a master of historical fiction, Eva Stashniak is an award-winning and best-selling author of five novels, including 2012's runaway hit and international bestseller, The Winter Palace, about Catherine the Great, and Necessary Lies, which won the 2001 Canada First Novel Award, now called the Amazon Canada First Novel Award. Her newest novel, The School of Mirrors, is a lush, engrossing tale of love, deception, and scandal in the 18th century French court of King Louis XV. A highly anticipated book for the year, it was recently named one of CBC's Canadian fiction titles to look out for this spring. Eva traveled to Paris and Versailles to research this novel in the summer of 2018 at the height of the hashtag MeToo movement which inspired her to look deeper into the sanctioned sexual predation of those in power centuries ago. Born and raised in Poland, she now lives in Toronto. Welcome to Words with Writers podcast, Eva. Thank you. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. And what a wonderful bio, by the way. Well, thank <laughs> you very much. I'm very happy to be here and to talk books with you. Oh, yes. It's our favorite subject. So we've got quite a lot to talk to you about today, but we'd like to start with your new release that Brandy uh, told us a little bit about, The School of Mirrors. I believe it just came out February 22nd. Um, would you be able to give us a brief synopsis of what it's about? It is a story of a mother and a daughter in 18th century France. And the time frame is the Ancien Regime, the uh, height of the reign of Louis XV, through the uh, upheaval, a social upheaval of France and ending with the French Revolution. The mother is, her name is Veronique. She's a Deer Park girl. So a girl, one of the young lovers, the young mistresses of Louis XV that were groomed 
um, for him by Madame de Pompadour and other servants and kept in a mysterious deer park house, which is located in the town of Versailles. The daughter, the king's daughter, of course, he never knows about her or cares about her existence, but her daughter, Marie-Louise, is taken from her mother at birth, and she grows up at first among Versailles servants, but later among the midwives of Paris. And these two women search for each other all their lives, and they try to connect. And I won't tell you how it ends right now, but um, their story and the, the connection between them is the core of the novel. That sounds amazing. Um, and just for any of the listeners who haven't yet seen The School of Mirrors, it is an absolutely beautiful book. And I think you are going to read an excerpt from us. Yes. I would like to, and I actually would like to start from the very beginning, because this is the voice that came to me. The book came to me in stages. And the first stage was when I learned about the existence of Deer Park and about the whole deception that was used in order to lure these girls there to become mistresses, lovers of the king. And the moment I realized that there were very many of these young women taken there, one of them started speaking to me. I, I heard her voice. And this is how the novel actually was born. That voice is in the very beginning of the novel. So that's what I'll start with. So it's 1755. My mother didn't tell me much. I would have to go into service, she said. It's not what my late father or she had once hoped for me, but it is how it would have to be. I might still do well for myself if I learn fast, that is, and if I learn to please. At all times, not only when it suits me, willful girl that I am, eager to listen to everyone but my own flesh and blood. Should I have guessed what bargain she had struck for me? Perhaps, but I was still a child, even if I had turned 13 already. I didn't know how to spot danger in the silence between words, I didn't know the sequence of steps in the dance of sacrifice and betrayal. Used women's clothes was my mother's trade. Old taffeta dresses frayed at the hems and in underarms rotten with sweat. Fancy court robes, once embroidered with silver and gold, now deprived of adornment. The torn, muddy skirts of suicides fished out of the river. I hated it when she brought them home to sort and mend, soaked through with the stink of their previous owners, filthy, infested with fleas. We lived on Rue Saint-Honoré by then, on the fifth floor of a building overlooking the Quinzeville Market. In our old house, on Rue de Jardin, Papa had his own printing shop, where he printed and sold pamphlets and books, and we all lived in an apartment above it. Here, our rented room was divided with strings on which I hung laundry to dry. We slept in folding beds, my brothers on one, Mama and me on another. We ate on Papa's rickety workshop bench, which doubled as a sewing table. We cooked our meals in the communal kitchen downstairs, which had smoky fireplace and damp, moldy walls. A place of constant quarrels over firewood and cooking space, and sometimes of blatant thievery. The very day we moved in, I learned its basic rules. Turn your back and your wooden spoon will disappear. Leave your pot unattended and your food will vanish. Marcel was 11 then. 
Eugene 10, Gaston 8, they no longer attended the parish school, but ran chores for the carpenter or the butcher who had their stalls in the inner yard. Marcel claimed that the carpenter's wife would let him touch her pink tits. Eugene called him a brazen liar. Gaston followed his older brothers in awe. They only came home to eat and sleep. Sometimes when I collected their clothes for washing, in their pockets I discovered dice, stones, or dead mice. What would Adele be like had she lived? Children, I often heard Maman say, happen. Then they happen to live or die. God, who has called my sister to his side, is inscrutable. He can take you because he loves you or because he wants to punish you for your sins. Lying in bed beside Mama at night, I thought about Papa and Adele, wondering where they might be. Adele I pictured enveloped in light, joyful in her heavenly bliss as she worships around the heavenly throne, God's faithful and beloved servant. I imagined Papa there too, although sometimes remembering that he was not a child and may have sinned, I saw him in purgatory, restless, in the eternal queue of souls awaiting the time of release. On the day my fate had been settled, I was in the kitchen, warming up a pot of bean stew, stirring it all the time to prevent it from burning. We also keeping an eye on my brothers. The fireplace was smoking as badly as ever. Gaston was running in circles, shouting as if possessed by demons, stopping to inhale and starting again, his voice shrill and loud. Here, doggy, here, sit, poor. I'm a hawk, Marcel screamed, throwing himself at his little brother. Get him, get him, Eugene urged him on. I yelled at them to stop and was threatening to whack them with the spoon if they did not obey me when Dame Rambeau's chambermaid, of whom people whispered that she had drowned her bastard in the Seine, rushed in. Mama wanted me upstairs, she said, right now. Catching Marcel's arm as he ran past me, I made him swear he would stop teasing Gaston. When he did, I told Eugene to mind the pot and hurried upstairs. Where are your manners, Veronique, Mama asked as I entered the room, hot and breathing hard. Keeping our honored visitor waiting like that? That is when I saw him, a tall, thin man, dressed in a purple velvet frock coat, a walking stick in hand. The dusting of face powder deepened the web of wrinkles on his cheeks, making him look like a corpse. The mossy sand around him I would later learn to know by its name, Ambergris. Is she the one you meant, monsieur? Durand, the man finished Maman's sentence. Haughty, I thought him. For when Maman implored him to take a seat, pointing at the only armchair that had survived the move from Rue de Jardin, he looked at it with disgust. Was it because of the pile of dresses next to it, set aside for mending? Is this who you meant, Maman repeated, motioning me to step closer. Smooth your skirts, girl, her eyes folded. Stand straight, stop panting like a chased dog. I pulled on the grey russet, tightened the chiffon fichu around my neck. It was stained with brown spots that wouldn't wash out and was therefore not worth selling. I forced myself to quiet my breathing. Monsieur Durand rapped on the floor with his walking stick. I had a vague feeling I had seen him before, but I didn't think much of it. Men often trailed me then, teased me with their foolish talk, how I had struck an arrow right through their hearts, how they would die if I didn't give them a kiss. 
I was a rare beauty, they said, a jewel to behold. Some beauty, my mouth scoffed. Gangly, she called me, all bones and sharp edges. It didn't take much to turn my head, did it? Monsieur Durand drew a sharp, impatient breath. His eyes passed over me as if I were just one of the objects in his cluttered room. Yes, Madame Rue, he said, she is the one. Madame's voice hardened. I was a good, dutiful daughter, she declared, her favorite and beloved child. I had a quick mind and deft hands. I could learn anything fast. A treasure, she called me, an adornment to any household. Monsieur Durand cut my mother short. I possess a mind capable of forming my own judgments, he said. Then he turned to me. Can you keep a room neat and clean? I nodded. You can perchance also speak, can you not? I know how to keep a room clean, I said. Do you know your letters? I do. Papa taught me. Well, enough to read aloud? Yes. Write in a good hand? Yes. Not too modest, are you? He ordered me to take a few steps to the right and to the left, though this had nothing to do with knowing my letters. I did what he asked, rather clumsily, forgetting about the loose board that always made me stumble. I've seen enough, Madame Rau, he said, turning back to Maman. Leave us, Veronique, Maman said. I was happy to obey. I had already decided that Monsieur Durand didn't like me and that I would never see him again. Downstairs in the kitchen, Eugene, Marcel and Gaston were sitting on the floor, shoulders touching. Glancing over their heads, I saw that they were holding sticks, poking them into a piece of honeycomb and licking off the honey. They didn't steal it, Eugene told me. It was a gift from someone they were not to mention. Sticky fingers, lips, vests, breeches, I thought. More laundry, more ironing. Why do I have to be the eldest and the only girl? Oh, that was beautiful, Eva. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Well, thank you for listening. It's, uh, you know, the book becomes alive when you read it eventually you know it's uh, I still remember all the versions it went through and all the <laughs> hard work but this is the voice but this is the voice that I heard from the very beginning and this is what started the, the me on the long journey which is this novel it's a beautiful have, beautiful excerpt yeah I have to say I found that really powerful because I did read that part already and I've been getting to know Veronique and um, I don't think I'm giving any spoilers here because you mentioned at some point she has a daughter that she's separated from. I mean, when you get to that part, <laughs> your heart breaks for her, right? But even the beginning where you're getting to meet her and learn about her, and how she gets, you know, in the further situations, uh, just to hear you read that really <laughs> almost made me cry a little. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And there's there's two things that, that struck me right away listening to you. And the, the first is that the language that you use is absolutely beautiful. The words and how they come together, it's, it's rich. And also how right in the opening pages of the novel, you've perfectly set the scene of what it might feel like to live in the 18th century. And you definitely know you're not in our time. So I was wondering what kind of research do you have to do to set yourself and your reader into the time frame of your writing? 
this is a very, very important part of my writing. I have to see that scene. I have to see that house, this, these women, the interiors, the exteriors, the streets in Paris uh, before the revolution, during the revolution. I really have to picture it for myself before I can write. I cannot believe that if I don't see it, my reader will not see it. And I have to see far more than I will use in my novel. You know, this is the old iceberg story. You know, I will show you the very tip of it, but I have to have the rest uh, to know what to show you, right? You know, like which, which, which details, you know, if I only have three details, I'm tempted to give you all three. If I have a lot, then I will use the best ones. So my research is sort of goes through stages. My first one is to immerse myself in the, at the times, you know, and I wrote a few novels set in the 18th century. So it gets easier with each writing. You know, I did study 18th century medicine. I did study, you know, for one of my novels, I studied, you know, I, uh, Catherine the Great and, and St. Petersburg, you know, so I knew what was happening in Russia at that time. I was writing about Warsaw in the 18th century. So the 18th century world was very rich for me already. And I was in Paris with my other characters, but they were not they were you know, sort of more middle class. They didn't live in this uh, in this rundown tenement apartment block. So I read. The 18th century is wonderful for it because um, there are so many sources, you know, that it was the time where police, uh, especially in France and in Paris, police had informers who wrote down the most minute and irrelevant details about the lives of people. You know, if you are paid by the word and if you spend most of your day listening in the cafes or sort of under a tree, there was a famous tree in Paris where people gathered and exchanged gossip then you would record anything because, you know, it was material. It was uh, it was what you got paid for. So, you know, these reports exist. You can read them. And, and you have this fantastic sense of details. And so I, I read a lot. I read a lot. I also read memoirs because that uh, memoirs are more uh, structured. And obviously the author of the memoirs wants to sort of make a good impression on the reader, maybe present herself or himself from the better light. But you can read through it. And, and some writers are really good. Some memoir writers will give you these precious details that you will use. So I did that. I, I also talked to historians, asked them to direct me to specific sources. You know, like, let's say I want to know how people lived, you know, like if, if, if there was a bigger house, you know, in Paris, how would that house be organized? You know, how would people live? You know, so there would be bigger apartments on the lower floors. When you, by the time you got to the fifth floor, there would be on the rooms rented out. And then there would be in the attic were usually also rented out to maids and to laundresses. And, you know, so I had that sense of the life of a building. Again, I took that from, from history books. There is, uh, historians are wonderful, you know, and, the, and I think in the last 20 or 30 years, the history of everyday life has developed. So you have, you know, if you are a writer of historical fiction, you'll find a wealth of material always. So I do that. So that's my second stage. And, and then, of course, at first I read everything that I think I might need. Then I, as I write, I realize that I may not have read about what I really need to right now. So I do additional research. But there's also a moment always in my writing where I, if I really am to go on, I have to go and visit the places I write about. And part of it is that I, you know, I do work with maps. I always had a map of 18th century Paris in front of me, you know, as I plotted the, the way the characters moved. But, you know, if I already have the scene sort of playing in my head, I have to stand 
in front of the palace and imagine it. I have to stand in the garden of Versailles and think about young Marie-Louise sort of running away and, and hiding. Where would she hide? Because then I look at uh, what would be just an ordinary landscape in a different way. You know, that garden is a very good example because, you know, if I were just a tourist walking through Versailles Gardens, I would probably look at flowers and beautiful vistas and other things. But if I imagine that I'm a 10-year-old or 8-year-old who is lonely, very lonely, and maybe wants to hide, then I realize that there are, you know, I look for places to hide, you know, which I would not, you know, you would not probably as a tourist uh, want to do it. So that's, that traveling is really, really important for me. And then, of course, with with Paris, you realize that 18th century Paris doesn't exist, right? It was rebuilt, torn to, and rebuilt in the 18th and late uh, sort of 19th century. Um, so you have to sort of um, imagine how it was. I mean, there's no Bastille. There's no uh, temple anymore. There's no writing school where the revolutionaries gathered. The Tuileries Palace has been burned, you know, not during the revolution later, but it doesn't exist. There's the spot for it. So you have to kind of, you walk through these places and you say, okay, this, I imagine it to be a palace. And this is how long it would take me, you know, if I were Marie-Louise and if I had to walk from the house where I want to live, how, you know, that's how I would walk. Is there anything from that time that is still around? So I do a lot of that. I sort of put myself in these places. And that, that I enjoy doing it. I, I always get something very, very essential and important from these trips, something that I couldn't have come up with, with from books alone. So you're you're visiting them from the the mind and viewpoint of your characters. Yeah. Yes, I story. do. So I have to have a draft. In other words, I have to. I I don't have the full novel yet, but at least I know where the novel is going, and I and I can. There are scenes that I know that need this sort of input, and that becomes an interaction between what I have imagined and reality. And and then just to tell you a funny story is <laughs> when I was writing The Winter Palace and I went to the St. Petersburgs for the first time, we got to the Winter Palace and I said, well, everything that I wrote about the Winter Palace is all wrong. <laughs> because, of course, I imagine it from photographs. Yeah. Proportions were all wrong. <laughs> everything was wrong. The light was wrong. The river was wrong. Everything was wrong. So... You need that as well. It's, a, it's amazing what you can. Um, I, I find like pictures, they don't give you the magic of the place, right? So you, you need to see it, to feel it. I need to have the physical, this physical presence because I have to feel how big is that palace? Does it dwarf me? How would I move around? How would I find myself in this corridor, that corridor? How long would it take me to go? to the place you know so sometimes you have a scene that's sort of hanging in doesn't really have the setting for it and then you think well that's a perfect setting for it right here I'm walking in it and then I can take notes there's the magic of the research and the location and the writing blending and if that happens then you immediately your writing source you know you see that you've hit it this is it you know as a, the writer and you know that's it you've got mm -hmm. it and and then you get a, a novel like School of Mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> now your genre is historical fiction. 
Did you kind of always, from when you started writing, know that was going to be your genre? Was there anything in particular that drew you that well, way? You know, historical fiction can mean many things. I, for me, it is a novel set in history. And, you know, I cannot really write an 18th century novel, right? It's impossible. And it wouldn't be interesting to anybody in the 21st century. So I think about the School of Mirrors or the or my Catherine novel or any other novel that I write. So the novel, a, a contemporary novel, because I am a contemporary writer, but set in that time and authentic to that time as much. But I bring to this novel the consciousness and the moral uh, understanding of the 21st century woman writer, right? Yeah, I, the Dear Park girls would have been dismissed by most of the French society in the 18th century. Oh, you know, they were paid off for whatever service they performed for the great king, Louis XV, right? So who cares? And I come and I care. And I care very much because I look at it. These women were voiceless. They could not uh, have told their stories. I, I want to listen. I want to do it. So so I bring something. And so for me, historical novel is a very rich field, you know, that's something that I can approach in, with, in different ways. It's, it allows me to, to write about what I care, but also gives me the setting that perhaps it makes it easier to write about the past because we already know what happened. We have that hindsight. We know that there would be a revolution. I mean, we, we don't know what will happen with Ukraine right now. And it's very hard to write about it if you were a novel. You know, that's why novelists usually write about things that happened at least 10 years before or several years before. Because you have a little bit of a longer view and you can see how what was maybe insignificant became significant. So I, I, I like the 18th century because it's um, it's far enough, but it's not as far that it would be foreign, you know, that we would think about it as a foreign country uh, in terms of foreign time. There's enough of similar attitudes. I mean, the women in, in the 18th century are perhaps more forthcoming and more bold and more sexually liberated, if I can say so, than the 19th century women. The Victorian women were so repressed very often by, uh, you know, not all of them, of course, uh, but very often lower and middle class women could not afford to be repressed, you know, at, at any time. Uh, but uh, the, the, the sort of Victorian ethos of femininity was very, very much, different from the 18th century. The 18th century is much closer to, to us. So, so I love these uh, going into the past. But when you ask me, how did I come about it? I mean, it, I didn't come about that I want to try the novel about the 18th century. With every novel that I'm, I was writing, there was always something in me in, in the, at the present time that drew me to a subject that I discovered in the past, right? So, you know, I'm an immigrant. I came to Canada um, and I had to become Canadian. I wanted to become Canadian. I'm grateful to have become Canadian. I have to make that <laughs> absolutely sure. But so, so most of my characters, you will notice that the big exception of the School of Mirrors are immigrants. They are in one country because they left another and they have to, you know, Catherine the Great, she's a Russian princess. She has to make herself into a Russian Tsarina. You know, and I have every single novel that I write is about someone who has to come from one culture and you know, rewrite 
himself or herself, and mostly herself, because I'm interested in women and their voices. And so in that sense, I look into history for a reflection of what is close to my heart. And in the School of Mirrors, of course, the women are French, so I don't have the cultural issue, but I have something else. And maybe, you know, that's power, attitude of, to power, to sexual exploitation of power. Also, this dismissal of the heart that power exerts, you know, so if you, if, you know, just taking an example, you know, when you, whenever you talk about women trafficked or women who, who have exploited and made victims of sexual exploitation, and if they gain any material compensation from it, you know, even in contemporary accounts, you hear this, oh, why does she complain? She's got $500 million or whatever. How, you know, that wasn't that hard. There's that sense, what happens to you emotionally? Mm-hmm. So it was like the attitude to these uh, dear part girls. Well, sure, they, they became the king's lover for a few weeks, days, maybe just even one day. It could happen too. And then they were married off. They got a dowry. They, you know, the, look at these servants. The servants had to work so hard. These girls were privileged. And then you, and you say, well, wait a minute. What happens to them emotionally? What happens to them if you, they have a child and, they're, and we know that many of them have children and we also know that the children were taken away. What happens to them then, right? So in that sense, I look, maybe I'm sort of cheating a bit and maybe my historical books is like, you know, putting on costume and moving into a different time, but still writing about what um, uh, the way I understand the world right now and the past right now. I think that's what makes them so powerful, right? Is talking about today's events, but with with history as the background, I guess. Yes, or or echoes of today's events, right? Because we are all human and we were, you know, we are really not that different to these 18th century people. And, And because we are far away from them, we can see what they didn't see. And those who come after us will see what we don't see. So in a sense, this historical perspective is, is very, very important. Um, and it's very precious. You know, I, you know, I, I grew up in Poland. And, and, and if you grow in a country like Poland, where history determines everything in the present, you know, you, you cannot, ex- you know, if you ask people to explain something, you know, if you're a child and you ask what happened here, well, there was a big war. And before that, there was another war. And then before that, there were partitions. And before that, you know, Catherine the Great, you know, divided Poland. And, you know, you suddenly, for everything, you get this explanation that goes at least 300 years. So that may be another, you know, explanation of why my mind goes there. I kind of like to have that longer picture. I like to yeah. go into the, the past and, and see, seek the seeds of the present in it. Well, as I was reading, uh, particularly the beginning part where you're kind of introducing Deer Park and the idea behind it, the girls there, one of the first things my mind thought of was how much it connects to human trafficking today and you know the predation of young girls today and how it was done at that time in a different way more overtly right it was more okay I suppose um but it it really does connect what's still happening to girls and women everywhere today with how it happened back then but you also have these big historical events, these revolutions, these, these big things that humans are 
living through. Um, and, and it's just very interesting that you have those events to use as backdrops as well, right? With today, you have women and girls going through these situations in, for example, like during the pandemic, human life happens, we still go on, but we still have these huge historical events happening as the backdrop to it. You know, in, in several years, if we want to tell the story of the pandemic, if we want to, we will tell it differently than we are telling it right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will forget the frustration. We will forget some of it. We will, or we will make it bigger than, than it was. And I, I'm always fascinated in how we remember the past and how we, with each remembering, how our storytelling takes over and we not only remember this, well, first we remember, and then as we tell the story, we remember, we change it, we adopt it, we polish it. And, and, you know, anything that happened during our childhood becomes nicer with time because, you know, especially if we had a good childhood and we go with nostalgia to it. And then when you talk to your siblings, you may realize that your memory of the childhood of something that you thought everybody in the family remembered the same way. It really is very different for you than for your brother, sister, or, or maybe, and your parents still remember it in a different way. So as a writer, I'm always fascinated in that. And I think that historical material renders that. And while we are in it, we don't really have that big issue. We are like in the middle of a busy market uh, place and we only can see one stall and maybe talk to a few people. We don't have this bird eye picture of how it was. Even though some people already, you know, maybe some filmmakers, documentary, you know, they, they document it. But it, it will take time to get that sort of sense of what really, what it really meant for, for we don't know the consequences of yet, do we? And then once we know the consequences, oh, this is what was important. We missed it entirely. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. easier to write about the past than the, the immediate presence. Right, right now we're, uh, we're too deep in the trees to see the forest, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so growing up in Poland, did that give you an opportunity to, to explore Europe at all or? Well, I, I grew up in communist Poland, don't forget, which means <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have your passport, you had to apply for it. And it's, it was only in the 70s when you were allowed to, you know, cross the Iron Curtain and go to the, anywhere else. So at first, at first you couldn't go anywhere. So I read a lot. <laughs> but of course, you also grow in a sense, like in a cage, you know, in a big prison. I mean, it's a very big cage. It's a country. But you have that sense of being locked and not being able to go. So I think that for me, books and reading offered that, oh, I can be in London. I can read, you know, as a child, you know, I'll read Mary Poppins and I'm in London, right? I can read Arsene Dupin and I'm in Paris. I can, you know, I can be anywhere. Books were around. And so so that was, so my, most of my seeing the world was through books um, and, and that they were everywhere. They were available. Um, my mother always said that, uh, you know, if you, what, what else can you buy for a few Zlatis, right? You know, they were cheap. They were not very expensive. Uh, that much pleasure, that much knowledge, that much joy. Uh, what else can you spend this money on, right? That will give you that much. You know, there was, um, of course, 
the TV was um, at first didn't exist, and when it existed, was not that machine that draws everybody's attention right now. So it was a very different childhood. Yeah. Um, actually, I've I've become quite fond of a, a bookstore in Port Perry called uh, Willow Books. And when you walk in, the first thing that they they tell you is welcome to the the universe, right? Everything you've ever wanted to know is on these four walls mm. and all the shelves in there. Mm-hmm. So while Brandy is reading School of Mirrors, I've actually just started The Chosen Maiden. Not very far into it, Parrot Chapter 1, <laughs> but it is amazing so far. Well, Brana Nizinska for me was this perfect heroine because she was Polish ethnically, you know, with Polish parents, but she was born in Minsk, which is now Belarusia. You know, while the, and the parents, you know, they lived all over the, Russia. They traveled through this, you know, troupe of dancers. And then she was educated in St. Petersburg. And then, of course, all her, most of her dancing career was in the Western Europe because Ballet Russe, which she joined, really did not perform in Russia. They performed in Paris and Monte Carlo. And, so here she was, this nobat, was a woman of many passports, many identities, so, so yes, I, I found that to be sort of the most interesting um, uh, journey for me is just to try to understand an artist who is a migrant too and for whom art is home far more than ethnicity. Even though, of course, there's the connection to the language, to the Polish language, uh, to Russian, of course, as well. And to, that was quite a journey for me. I really loved writing this book. It's, it's very evident. And I love the way you put that, that art was her home. Yes, yes. There was a place, but art was her home. And, and, and Russia was, you know, in a sense, this was also the, the, the novel, you know, the, the Chosen Maiden was the novel sort of closed my Russia, my Catherine the Great books, because when I was writing about the Catherine the Great in the 18th century, I sort of thought, okay, so this is her Russia. This is the Imperial Russia. This is sort of the height of Imperial Russia that will end, crush down in 1917 with the, with the revolution. And, and Braya Nizhinska was perfect because she spent a lot, you know, she actually spent the revolution at quite, until 1920, so not the whole revolution, but, but the, the, the revolution changes in Russia. So she was in St. Petersburg first and then she was in Kiev for the two years, uh, for 1918-19 and the beginning of 1920s. So, so the time were, which, you know, when you think about it, you just get these shivers down your spine because you read her diaries and she describes the armies six times change, you know, so the army comes, captures Kiev, uh, introduces its order, executes whoever, you, you know, they don't like and then leaves because another army takes over so you've got ukrainians you've got um you've got russians red white russians and red russians red soviet uh troops you have germans you have poles you have because it's it's sort of the aftermath of world war one and bombs are falling there are explosions there's hunger nothing functions and there's a bunch of artists a group of artists who are creating the most beautiful art you know they are painting you know they are creating ballet they are um this this modernist world of the art you know that for her for 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 Nizhenska the real Nizhenska and and of course in my novel these were the best times of her life even though she had two small children her life was in danger but the students who gathered wanted to learn they didn't care about anything else they wanted 
to create with her. So that sense of the contrast between the destruction of the world around you and the creation that comes from within, I found it very, very moving. And I cannot, you know, and now that I think of Kiev right now being bombarded, I cannot stop thinking about her being there and uh, with Alexander Exter, with Les Kubras, with all these wonderful artists. And they were creating worlds that were, that tried, and they managed to, to sort of ignore the destruction and save whatever was the, the most precious for them. And I, I, I wonder, I've never been in a situation like that, but I wonder whether that's something that you kind of have to do to get through times like that. Well, yes, if you have that kind of a spirit, I didn't live through the kind of war that my parents lived through. I mean, I was born way after the World War II. But my parents, you know, when you grow up in a country that went through such a devastation, the stories you hear are about, yes, you hear about artists and people who are heroic and who do, but you also, you hear about people who are totally uh, depraved by violence and war and who instead of helping or doing something decent that they will sell another human being or destroy or kill you know all the the worst and the best can come out so I don't know if, if I dare even suggest which way is the way whichever gets you through is the way right you know for some some people become heroes and some become murderers at the same time so it's very difficult, and um, especially to talk about it right now, with when it's sort of happening in, on our TV screens, right? And you see that right you know, on on the TV screens. We're seeing that right now. You do see this awfulness, but you do also get these glimmers of moments, right? Yeah. Yes. There was a, a video of a little girl singing in uh, her shelter. Um, these videos of true human warmth and strength that comes out of these terrible situations. Yeah. And when I, when I think about it, you know, that's what, as a writer, I'm drawn to that, you know, when I'm, you know, I, it's like if, when I was growing up in Poland, these big historical, you know, um, World War One for my grandmother, World War Two for my grandmother and my mother, um, the uprisings, the, the this communist uh, memories of Stalinism of everything that was the big history. But then there was there was life, there were everyday events, and and that. So when I write about these big events in my novel, I will sketch what's happening in the big history, but I want to. I want the reader to be immersed, to be with the people in these houses that are being bombarded. But also, you know, during the French Revolution, be with the midwives who have to deliver babies during the terror, right? And the, the women who have to live through it, you know, feed their children. You know, how do you do it? How do you survive? Where do you get that strength? Um, I think that this big history is, to me, much more important when I think about it, it from the perspective of ordinary people who, who have to live through it. And yes, big, you know, the extraordinary people are also caught in it. You know, if you are Louis XVI, you end up on, uh, you know, being guillotined, right? So you're caught in this mock trial that happens. And that becomes sort of the, for me, the, the material for my writing. And that's the inspiration. That's what draws me into, into, 
these big uh, moments in history, trying to imagine how people lived through it, how they survived and, and what they learned from it. And can we learn something from them? And you did just touch on something there again, because um, I would like to talk about one more thing before our, our time is running out with you. <laughs> like Chris said at the beginning, we have so much we could discuss with you. <laughs> but there is something I'd like to touch on because midwives do play a very prominent role in the School of Mirrors. And I, I know you feel they, they were considered the feminists of their time. And maybe you could just uh, tell us a little bit about that aspect of the novel. Well, that was my biggest uh, surprise, in a sense, because um, they, I didn't intend, I didn't set up myself up to write about the midwives. Um, I knew I had Veronique, and I knew she had to be pregnant, because that's what I read in the sources. And I, well, if I have a pregnant woman, then she'll have to give birth. So at some point, I said, well, I cannot move any further without the midwife. I have to, <laughs> I have to get a midwife for my Veronique because she's going to give birth. And then I said, okay, well, what do I know about midwives in the 18th century France? And I started searching and I discovered Madame de Corbier, this amazing woman who not only was a midwife, she was also connected to Louis XV because she was an educator. She wanted to change the way midwives delivered babies, not just in big cities or in, the, in, in Paris, but also in the provinces. And therefore she had the idea of teaching midwifery uh, all over France and she needed the support of the king. And she also, since she taught this to, to women who were not perhaps who, who learned from practical uh, actions more with their hands more than with, uh, you know, they are not scholars. They were, uh, education was was to, generally midway so educated as apprentices. So they, they sort of practiced it. So she came up with this uh, fantastic machine, which was a, a model of a pregnant woman that um, this adept, this young uh, woman who is learning can actually practice upon. And, and so, so this, this was for me a new world when I read about it. And I said, okay, well, that's it. These midwives were empowered. They were, they were the opposite of my dear park girls. You know, they were empowered. There were, they could testify in court. They were, their profession was respected. Very often that meant livelihood and respect for the family. So they had respect. The husbands would not mind um, their wives training to become midwife because a midwife in the family would bring respect. And so all these things that we think of a professional woman in the 21st century, 20th century, that's what a midwife could be. Didn't have to, you know, not if she was in a small village and didn't know very much and was sort of knew what her mother taught her or somebody else. But if they were like Madame de Couturier or anybody who learned from her, these were the women that were, in fact, empowered. And, and I like the irony of it that the same king who sort of used these young women and totally took away all the agency at the same time committed a lot of money and support to a woman who traveled all over France and empowered young women to become, you know, so in a sense, nobody is entirely bad or entirely good there's there are always two sides there's there are shadows we are, there are gray areas so I liked it for the from the novel's point of view I really like that contrast 
And plus, there's another thing that sort of uh, Louis the Fifteenth, you know, was I read a lot about him, of course, because I had to imagine him. He really didn't want to be king. He he considered it a horrible misfortune in his life. And if, if anybody wanted to ask him what he wanted to be, who he wanted, he would have loved to be a surgeon or a doctor. And I thought, ah. That is perfect, you know, so I can use that. This, you know, in, in the whole question of inheritance, what did Marie-Louise inherit from her parents? Well, she becomes a midwife. She sort of, she she lives the, in a sense, uh, um, her, the father whom she never knew. She she lives uh, his dream in a sense, but she so so I liked all these echoes that the midwives brought into the story. But I really respected them, especially French midwives, because of course I did a quick research around midwives in in England or in uh, Germany at that point did not have the same privileges as the French midwives, especially before the revolution, because the revolution sort of destroyed that a little bit. And I do write a little bit about it in the novel as well. But um, if you ever are in France in France, go to the Museum of Medicine and you'll see the machine that is still preserved and you can walk in it in sign glass, but you can look at it and you can imagine all these young girls, maybe 16, 17 years old, you know, who are practicing to become midwives on this particular machine and how many lives they've saved, how many women were saved by by someone who was skillful and could help them. So it's, it's a tremendous achievement. So that was my, it was part of the novel that, that I really loved researching and loved learning about. Sounds well, amazing. Yeah, I, I, I haven't gotten far enough yet. I didn't realize how truly, like, that's a deep, full circle, right? I love that uh, she becomes a midwife and that harkens back to her father's desire to be a surgeon, even though they didn't know each other. You know, he's not like a hero in this story at all but still she gets pieces of him right yes yes yeah what do we inherit from the people in our families that we never met we never know do we <laughs> maybe there was maybe there were so many storytellers in my family i've never met right <laughs> so you know the longer you live you the more you want to explore this issue of inheritance you know you know more generations you know I remember my grandmother and I have a grandsons right so how many I've met several generations and I can see how certain traits travel through a family which maybe 30 years ago I wouldn't have noticed so that's that's another inspiration that helps in the writing well Eva I'm (laughs) After listening to you, I, I have to read. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, I, I have to say I'm a little blown away from the whole interview. You just have a terrific way of explaining how you, you write the story, what you were thinking. Um, Thank you for being here. I don't know what else to say. I'm still blown away. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. And yes, I, I, as I said, I listened to a couple of your podcasts. I love the idea that you do write, you know, you like to talk to your uh, writers about crafts, you know, about how things are made. It's always interesting. And, you know, I always learn something if writers talk about how they write. So hopefully maybe someone will also be inspired by my experience. Absolutely. Gonna follow in Eva's footprints. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, and so before we go, is there um, anywhere that listeners can pick up a copy of your book or follow you or learn more about you? Absolutely. Uh, my website, so it's www.evastashniak, my first and last name together, .com. There's information there and books are available so far in any bookstore, the Indigo, the independent bookstore. If anybody wants a signed and personalized copy, I have a very interesting deal with another story bookstore in Runcesvales, you know, here in Toronto. And they will call them, you know, if you if anybody orders a book through them and they you can order it uh, through the mail and they will call me, I will sign it, I will personalize it and they will mail it to the readers. And it's all on my website, the information of how to do it. So perfect. And we'll include that in our, our podcast notes so that our listeners can easily find it. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. And again, my website has all the phone numbers and uh, information about it. So it should be easy to find to link it. And also it supports an independent bookstore, which I always like. I think I've been in that one. I think I was at a book launch for that one at that one. Probably. Yes. They are very, I mean, lately there haven't been too many of those, but (laughs) alas, yes, they are very very active and they are very much a part of uh, the the community here. So it's quite wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Brandy. It was lovely to talk to you and, uh, all the best. Yes. Thank you, too. you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank Wow, Chris, uh, that interview was just amazing. It really, for me, I don't know, I'm struggling for the words because I've been reading the book over the last week and hearing her read it and explain to us, you know, all the depth behind it and even her, you know, explaining the reason the midwives came more into the book than she thought they would and how the daughter is connected to her father through this desire to be a midwife, uh, the desire to be in the medical field without ever, you know, knowing her father or anything. All of these details that I never would have known if I hadn't spoken with Eva uh, really just makes the book even deeper for me. And, and I truly just enjoyed speaking with her <laughs> immensely. <laughs> yeah, me too. And that's uh, like, I, I said it during the interview, right? But the, her, Eva's language is so beautiful and deeply heartfelt, I think, is what I feel. And I, I saw it when I'm reading The Chosen Maiden, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it in The School of Mirrors. Yeah, and I couldn't recommend the book more. Uh, like I say, I haven't even you know gotten to the end yet, but it is so beautifully written. Her style is, it's a contemporary writing style, but done in such a way that really does 
pull you to that historical period of time that she's talking about. And like you had mentioned, um, even the first part she's reading about the brothers and uh, Veronique in the kitchen and, and she's about to threaten them with the spoon. And <laughs> just even the little moments she writes about in this book, uh, does it in this way that connects you to now and back then. It's, it's really quite amazing. I, I, I smiled when uh, she read that bit. <laughs> I never got threatened with a spoon, but uh, I heard stories of it. <laughs> never got the spoon. It was the it was the soap. If I said, "Oh, I got the soap." <laughs> yeah, so I got that one time, and then the threat is basically enough. <laughs> yeah, I got it one time as well, and then what really hit at home was like the two days later, my uncle was like, "So, Dove or Ivory?" And I was like, I was crushed with embarrassment. So I never did it again. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's cruel, but also, you know, pretty resourceful. Thing. I mean, you get it. <laughs> Up or ivory. Yeah. yeah. Please, neither. <laughs> well, um, since we haven't had a show in a while, we've missed out on all the wonderful writing adventures that our members have been on lately. So we'd like to take a few minutes to go over some of the latest Canadian Authors Toronto member news. First up, Christine Bergsma converted a screenplay that was listed as a semi-finalist in the Austin Film Festival into a historical fiction young adult novel called Himena. After the devastating mudslide of 1970 decimates her village, Jimena's only hope of survival and reuniting with her family is the reliance on Mango a gangster that mugged her the week before. Himena is now available on Amazon, along with Christina's novel, Ace of Cups, a woman's commercial fiction novel exploring the aspects of immigration of a young girl from South Africa to Canada. Hmm, Christina sounds like a great candidate for a future podcast episode. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Also available through Amazon is Richard Pive's book, Sir John James Taylor, De Facto Ruler of Ireland, Assistant Undersecretary of Ireland, 1918 to 1920. It tells the story of the author's great-granduncle, a commoner who rises through the ranks of the British civil service in Ireland to a position of influence during the Anglo-Irish War of Independence. You can find out more about Richard and the book on his website, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-P-Y-V-E-S.com. Next up, Joanne Catania is happy to announce the release of the audiobook version of her novel, A Scarcity of Virgins, narrated by award-winning narrator Cassandra Campbell, author of Where the Crawdads Sing. This feminist period piece explores with psychological depth the full emotional palette of a woman caught between worlds. You find this one on Amazon also in both print and ebook formats. In debut author news, Aaron S. Bailey recently published his first book, Why Baseball is a Sport and Golf is Not, Separating the Players from the Posers. It received a positive review from Kirkus Reviews, and part of the proceeds from the sale of the book 
will be donated to Autism Canada. You can purchase why baseball is a sport and golf is not at wbiasagin.com. Big congrats to Aaron. And I know a number of people who would argue strenuously with that, but... <laughs> yes, one of them is, is my fiancé. He does <laughs> not like the title of that book, but <laughs> I'm sure it is still a fascinating read. <laughs> that sounds like it would be good. Um, so Catherine Graham is also happy to announce that her second novel, The Most Cunning Heart, is on CBC Books' Fiction to Watch For list and 49th Shelf's Most Anticipated Spring Books list. That's amazing. Pre-orders are now available through your local bookstore. The novel will be published by Palimpsest Press this May. She is also excited to be co-hosting the Hummingbird podcast, Conversation and Inspiration with Jessica Outram. And hopefully she's another future podcast guest, because I can't believe we haven't had Catherine Graham on before. <laughs> I know she's done some events with us. She's been a member for quite some time. So Catherine, yeah, I was just thinking that. going to reach out to you. <laughs> Well, our author members are also holding some upcoming events that will be fun to check out as we all start going outside our home bubbles uh, more and more. So Darlene Medoff, author of Dying Times, will be speaking at the Hot House Restaurant in Toronto at 5.30 p.m. on Monday, March 28th. To reserve your spot, you'll need to call Amanda at 416-366-7800 between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. on Monday to Friday. Then later this spring, on Thursday, May 19th, previous podcast guest Pat Connors is launching his first full poetry collection, The Other Life, released by Mosaic Press last year, at Hyrule Cafe, which is located at 2050 Danforth Avenue in Toronto. And Josie DiCiascio Andrews and Stedman Cardi will also be reading. Uh, so that is the end of our member news. And Chris and I would like to just say, if we got your name wrong at all, we apologize immensely. And we will try harder. <laughs> in the <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely. There was a lot of tough ones this month. <laughs> But uh, I, I want to say those all of those events that you just read sound fascinating and amazing. Um, and the Hot House was actually one of my favorite restaurants. They had a delicious brunch and a really good supper. Cool. I was I was hoping if if I didn't have to work that day, I would be going. Um, I I would love to go to both of those. Unfortunately, they're on days that I work, so I won't get to go. <laughs> Unacceptable. But it will be a ton of fun for everybody who gets to go. And uh, speaking of going before we go, Chris, I want to say something to you because I don't even know if you're aware of this because I didn't know until my mom texted me that today we're recording today on March 14th. And this is the two year anniversary of the release date of our very first podcast episode. Wow. And yes, my mom texted me that because she writes, 
the anniversary of every single thing that has ever happened. <laughs> so she had to text me for me to know that. That's amazing. I didn't know that actually. <laughs> Slipped right by me. And she says to Chris, big congratulations and thank you for being my daughter. <laughs> Thanks, Brandy's mom. <laughs> Be careful or you'll get on the Christmas card list. And if you get on that list, you never get off. Like I, I like I like Christmas cards. <laughs> <laughs> Don't need to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time to close the show. Come back next month for a return to CAA member readings and more amazing new content from Words with Writers podcast. Yay! Bye everyone. Bye everyone. <laughs>